Try to kill us, but my village too strong. Long live the people. Here we go again with the bullshit you want. Long live the people. We have all these mixed blood people all across the country. We cannot exclude them. There's nothing wrong with being Red River Metis. We are all Metis. There was an attempt to define Metis. And we said no. There's Métis from Red River. What's wrong with Métis from someplace else? And they were also Métis people. Uniting our people is at a very sad state. We are all Métis. Welcome to The Jig Is Up. And with me as always is the professor, Jason. Welcome. How's it going, Darcy? Not too bad. How about you? Another night in paradise. Absolutely. We've had a busy uh, few weeks on the show. Four episodes in two weeks. That's kept, kept yeah. me popping. No doubt. Give a guy a few gray, more gray hairs. That's right. Well, hopefully everybody liked them. Hopefully people enjoyed listening. And uh, if you did and you want to send us a feedback, send it to metipodcast at gmail.com. We do love feedback. Absolutely. So we want to. I want to jump in right here, and Jason, I'm going to ask you a question, and we'll see how easy of a question it is to answer. Uh oh. Should the Canadian government pardon or exonerate Louis Riel? Well, that would be. Are we doing like uh, double jeopardy here? Do I get bonus points? Yeah, and you have to frame yeah. your, your answer in the form of a question. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I don't understand how even this is a real question, but I would. My vote would be yes, Darcy. Really, can I'm we so get, shocked. Can we get two yeses? <laughs> <laughs> does, oh wait, does that is, if we get a second, does that mean the motion passes or something? Isn't that how Robert? Oh, works? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So this is a question that I've seen on Facebook quite a bit, and it's annoying because I don't understand why anybody would say no to this. But I'll give you two guesses to say who do you think might have said no to this? Oh, um, hmm. uh, could it be someone in the hierarchy of the cartel? Oh, man, you're good at this game. Uh, yes, in fact, oh. it is the top dog in the whole works. So, El Presidente himself? That's right. So back in 2004... The government of Canada offered to review the entire um, legal case of Louis Riel. And he said at the time, Our position is very clear. We're not interested in seeking a pardon or exoneration for Mr. Riel. What we are interested in is seeing the government redress those things that Mr. Riel stood for, in particular, the substantive right of the Métis Nation. Now, in a more recent article, he stated... On this same topic, he stated, This discussion has gone beyond pardon. Now the term being used is exoneration. But the Métis Nation is on record currently that we do not favor a pardon or exoneration because we do not believe Louis Riel did anything wrong. What do you think of that logic? Well, I agree. I don't think Louis Riel did anything wrong, but our Canadian partner does hence why he was made dead <laughs> yeah it, it seems like um yes to to i think almost i mean i've never met a metis person that thinks louis riel deserved what he got uh and i've never met a metis person that doesn't believe that he did anything wrong or does believe he did anything wrong. however that works um so i don't really un- i mean i get the logic yeah of course none of us think he did anything wrong but like you said Canadian government says he did. So the whole point of the exoneration is not to exonerate him in the eyes of the Métis, which I think clearly Presidente Chartier there is missing the point on. The exoneration is to clear his name so that those charges don't don't apply anymore. Um, which well, I think it's also on a, on a bigger picture. Sorry to cut you off. It reframes it on the Canadian state side. Uh, we have the province of Manitoba that basically has recognized a legal criminal, a historic legal criminal, as the father of Manitoba. Yes. Uh, on so that's a dichotomy, and I think we need to reframe the conversation that this wasn't a rebellion that occurred. 
you know, we weren't, the Métis people were not, uh, you know, in rebellion against the Canadian state. And that's largely how this is being played out. And that what is the ultimate repercussions of someone who rebels against the crown? Well, you're you're branded an outlaw. And what do we do to outlaws? Well, in the time you executed them. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point of the conversation of exonerating uh, Riel is to reframe that whole conversation on the Canadian state side. Well, that's just it. I think on a legal standpoint, it would make a big difference. Um, you know, how do they how do they honor and, and celebrate a guy who technically, according to the Canadian legal system, is a traitor? You know, was a traitor and a criminal. And I, I think, so th- I, I think you're right. There is a huge gain to be won there. Um, I mean, whether they exonerate him, it's not going to change anything for Métis people as far as how they look at Riel. But it will change how the Canadian state looks at Riel. And in 20 years' time, rather than having teachers teach that Riel was a traitor and he, he paid for his crimes, maybe we'll have teachers teaching that. You know he was he was wrongly charged and convicted, even though he was innocent. Which is a very different conversation that that happens once you clear somebody's name like this, which clearly is it just flies over the head of of the MNC and their logic. So well, I think it's turning a blind eye to the fact that the education system still refers to it as the Red River Rebellion. And, and that, that term in and of itself then leads you to the ultimate conclusion, what happens to rebels. Exactly. You know? yeah. uh, so that's the problem. If, it's, if Riel isn't leading a rebellion, then he, you know, once he's exonerated, then it's not a rebellion anymore. We have indigenous people trying to stand up for their rights. Yes. And that's the real reframe of what we're looking for, I think, when we're talking about exonerating Riel is the reframe of that entire conversation to stop calling it a Red River Rebellion. Yeah. Now, you know, the thing that, that other, the other, some of the other things about this too that I, I noticed when I was doing some little bit of research on this, um, you know, the MNC is supposed to represent Métis people, theoretically. Uh, however, they clearly don't represent the relatives of Riel. Um, there was a fellow named Guy Savoy, who, uh, you know, he's adamant that he wants Excel or Riel exonerated. Um, and his quote in what he said was, if you go for a pardon, there's still the assumption of guilt. So exoneration is the only thing left, and, and let him take his place in the history of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Canada. And I think that's a very, I mean, that kind of is exactly what we're saying is, you know, as far as the Canadian government goes, they can't really pay homage to a convicted traitor at this point in time. Um, and I disagree with that. I disagree that he was convicted, but that's the whole point of this, right? Is to get him exonerated. So Yeah, I totally agree. And that's the dichotomy, as we have uh, the province of Manitoba, which has his picture hanging on the wall as the founding father of Manitoba. But in reality, basically, then Manitoba is celebrating that the province was founded by a convicted, you know, re- you know, rebellion leader, yes. you know, a traitor to the crown. So yeah, that, that doesn't exactly add up. Well, and, and it doesn't, I think it takes away from the other history of, of Riel. Like, uh, you know, he was an, an, a duly elected member of parliament, I think twice, who never ever got to sit in the House of Commons. Um, you know, he, he was the father of Manitoba you know things like this. He he led Métis people. He he did a lot of things in his life, but I think it's overshadowed by the fact that he was convicted of this crime. And to you know to Métis people, it's different. But to all the rest of Canada, which unfortunately makes up a vast majority of the people in this land, uh, he's still a traitor and a criminal. And and I think that's the point of doing all this is to is to reframe it so. You know, we can start teaching in schools that he was not a traitor and not a criminal. And in fact, he was, you know, a father of confederation. He was an MP. He was a lot of these other things instead. And, and it it takes that focus away from it. I, you know, in my opinion, that's that's where I would see it. Exactly. That's my two cents. I mean, the reality is and that's why I don't understand why this is even a conversation. If you exonerate Riel, it takes the, com- the whole word rebellion off the table. 
Yeah. And it reframes exactly what went on there is that it was indigenous people standing up for their right and their place in in the greater context of Canada. And that's exactly what happened. You know, a twice elected uh, MP. These these things need to take their proper place in history and just continually, like you said, it does get, you know, overshadowed by that word rebellion and traitor. Well, and, you know, some of the other interesting things I read, too, was, uh, like, uh, you know, MP Robert Falcon was, he stated that he, like, um, I think it's 2020 is the 150th anniversary of Louis Riel, and uh, and he wants to rename the Langevin block to Louis Riel block. <laughs> They're not going to do that at the House of Commons if he's a traitor, if he's labeled a traitor still. <laughs> um and you know, and then, but the the common theme in those things with Robert Falcon Ouellette, with uh, Chartier from the MNC, is it seems to me it's an either or conversation. Well, we can exonerate him, or we can talk about rights and talk about renaming Langevin Block. And I, my question is, why can't we do both? Why does it have to be either or? Can we not exonerate him and then name something after him, <laughs> like? Can we not exonerate him and then still talk about the rights he fought for? Because the actual fight doesn't go away. The, you know, the principles don't go away. So it seems weird that it's an either-or conversation. Well, and I, I find this is very much always the ploy of uh, the MNA is they use these opportunities to, instead of focus on the media priority, to throw shade over the conversation and bring up rights. Rights are always important, and that struggle has never gone away for Indigenous people. And it, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But when the question comes up, should we exonerate uh, Riel? I, th- I think the answer is yes. That's the end of that conversation. I agree, and I really think it should be. I don't understand why. I, I honestly can't understand why this is like we even have to be talking about this and why there's a controversy around this it does just doesn't make any sense to me at all but again it's it's another classic example of i think these organizations being out of touch with metis people being out of touch with what the people want and being in bed with the government and being government puppets Uh, I, i see no other reason why they would say no to this other than they're trying to protect their funding and their jobs and their relationship with the government. Because they're certainly not doing this because the members of the Métis National Council and all their affiliates had a vote and said, no, we don't want him exonerated. There's just no way that happened. Well, as always, there's a huge disconnect. I just don't understand why one thing doesn't immediately lead to the other. Like, why can't we exonerate... Real, why can't we name something after him, and why can't we finally get around to acknowledging the things he was standing up for in the first place? Exactly. These are not they're not mutually exclusive. One flows and ebbs to the other. So that's the way the conversation should go. The very fact that it has to be or is continually portrayed that way by the this organization, it simply baffles me, and it, it is really out of step. I think with the grassroots. Well, absolutely, and and it you know in, in kind of makes you well it should make you open your eyes because i find anytime an organization or a person or anything deals with in either or you there's no gray area there's you know it's it the the options are black and white and that's it i think you have a very polarized organization that is not seeing the bigger picture and it has lost the ability to see that bigger picture um and and that's how i see this it's I mean, why would any, like, I, I'm just baffled by this. Why would any, like, normal Métis person think this was not a good idea? Like, how how does this affect your ability to negotiate rights or talk about rights? Or It doesn't. It's, but again, it's like a polarizing. Well, we, we can't talk about that because that might, you know, anger the people who fund us. So we're, we're just not going to talk about that. And that, that's, I don't know, seems seems silly to me, but... Well, I think that, I mean, as an organization, um, it, you're free, I guess, in, in their case, if you want to take a hard and fast stand, like they have since, like you said, 2004, I think it was, that they, they're they not looking to exonerate Real, and that's fine. They want to take that opinion. 
that's their choice as an organization to make that stand. What I, I find funny, though, is that the, you claim that that is the only stand and yes. that anyone who opposes that stand or steps out of line with your position on that stand, somehow the authenticity of their identity is now in question. Well, and it's kind of ironic that it kind of makes them start to talk about, you know, anybody that speaks out against the the holy Métis nation is in fact a, a traitor to the nation, which just is really funny to me. Um, I mean, even here in Alberta, you have people that are losing their Métis identity or their Métis cards and Métis um, acceptance in an organization because they spoke out. Uh, we, you know, we have a mutual friend who spoke out or decided to start his own organization and, you know, they took away his hunting rights. They took away his, his organizational card with them and it's, it's insane. So you think like us or you, you're a traitor to the nation. That's not in any way, shape or form something that you should ever want to be part of. Well, maybe that's why they're not interested in having uh, reality exonerated. They're trying to do the same thing to their own people. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Don't don't step out of line or we'll lynch you. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe it is fear. Like, do you think there's something to be f- for them to fear by him somehow being exonerated? Like, would they – I mean, I can't see it, but, you know, you're the professor. So do you see any <laughs> any reason why they would fear having this done? No, I think the challenge with Riel as an individual, as a person, and as as a a basic hero of the Métis people, is he wrote uh, some very long journals with a lot of things that were counter to the current narrative that the, the Métis National Council and the affiliates have taken as far as identity issue goes. And we see over and over again, my biggest concern today is, is that you have an organization that claims ownership over identity and thus citizenship and uses that even when they talk about their cards that you're a citizen and but then somehow if you question your government if you question the authority and power you're disavowed as a citizen of that nation and the harm and the trauma that that goes on hand in hand i think is is you know flabbergasting to me that that in this day and age that that is somehow uh, accepted by the rest of the membership. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so to have Riel exonerated, I think, I don't think they are interested in it. It's better to keep him marginalized because then his identity politics that he talked about and the inclusive ideas about Métis identity and who we are as a diverse people across Canada can also then be marginalized. Yeah. Y- yeah. See, that's why you're the professor. <laughs> Yeah. Well, a few more gray hairs, I might get there. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you know it's uh, for me. A lot of times, I talk about you know how they're motivated by money, which I'm sure they are. But I guess in in cases like this, there is a little bit of that fear factor of you know, well, maybe we might look bad to the Canadian government. We might look bad, or we might lose a little ounce of power or authority over people, and maybe that's the motivation in a lot of this stuff. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting that they chose to take this side of things, and yet they prop him up as a hero, um, which which just kind of baffles me. But. Well, it's the real dichotomy of the MNC's position when it comes to Riel and his legacy is that as far as fighting the government and signing up for Métis rights, he's a hero as far as his view of who we are as a people, where we come from, and his inclusive overtones. Well, we just don't talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the same thing with Daniels, right? They they like to prop him up as a hero to Métis people, which he is. However, they fought actively fought against that case and did everything they could to get his definition of Métis like, basically kicked out of, out of any court system or, or ignored and get their definition of Métis accepted. So Yeah, so, I mean, exactly the same thing is, is here you have Harry Daniels who basically holds the same opinion of Métis identity as Riel, and you have the Métis National Council going to visit the Prime Minister to see if he will, you know, circumvent the whole legal process, yeah. you know, in, in the sake of defense of their definition over Riel's definition, over Harry Daniel's definition of who is Métis. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, so, you know, I think there is some fear there. You exonerate Riel, you change the conversation. Does that mean then we have to also, you know, um, view with, uh, you know, naked eye again, how he wrote about the Métis people? Yeah. Well, and, and that is a fear because I think there is the the kind of the, uh, I, you know, they call themselves Métis nationalists that are out there that like to prop up this, this uh, historic revisionism of, you know, only Métis that existed, it started in Red River, and and then it seems to vary depending on who you talk to from there based on script or based on this, and now it's based on Powley. They're refining it even more based on the Canadian government's legal definition of Métis that they've, that's how they look at it. So it's it's interesting how this, this Métis identity kind of shifts and moves and with these nationalists. However, if you go back to what Louis Riel said... If you go back to what Harry Daniels said, and these guys were pretty open and honest about their ideals of who well, Métis are. And the thing, yeah, and that's right. And the thing I value uh, the most about both of those, you know, uh, Daniels and Riel's position is they're consistent. Yes. Uh, you know, they're people separated by a, a significant portion of time, and yet their ideas of who is Métis and what it means to be Métis are consistent. I think a lot of people at the grassroots level and we've seen that uh, in different forms that these the elders come out and talk, have a very consistent idea of who is Métis. And I think that's the big dichotomy right now is the grassroots, I think, are very aware of who is Métis. But somehow the nationalistic organization that claims to represent Métis people uh, has a very different agenda. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and it's an agenda that works for them, right? It's not about working for people. It's about working for them and 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 making sure that their organization survives because they're founded on that uh, corporate principle. I mean, they are a boardroom just like any other organized, you know, corporation out there, and they gotta they gotta make sure the corporation survives. So that's well, the, like any any good CEOs, right? You're about profit margins. You're about capital expenditures. You know, bonuses, paychecks. Exactly. Housing allowances, right? Isn't that what CEOs and corporate execs do? Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Increase the distance between the 1% and the poor sap at the bottom. Yes. Well, and these guys definitely do that with their travel budget. So, But that we, well, we talked about that. We won't get back into that. I'm not going to sidetrack. <laughs> well, you can sidetrack. Ho- hopefully, the grassroots have a chance to speak out and speak up as the uh, these guys drive around in their uh, motorhomes and uh, come to see you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's ridiculous that they're even having this opposition to this. And I, I can't imagine people of any age or, you know, any Métis person of any age or, you know, where background saying, you know, let's keep him a criminal. Let's do, let's keep that. Um, it just doesn't make sense. So, so if you do see them out there, let them know, be feel free, feel free to go up and talk to them. They're your duly elected representative, according to them. So they have you have the right to go talk to your representative and voice your yes, concerns well, so moving on from that which was a, a ridiculously long conversation about something so simple <laughs> you know and it's, <laughs> did, we, did we make it to double jeopardy <laughs> i think so you know it's funny though i've i've asked a few people this that same question who are not metis and uh, who are First Nation, I've asked a First Nation person and, and uh, you know, just a non-Indigenous person. And both of them answered within probably, I don't know, 15 seconds. They they kind of looked at me like, was this like a trick question? I don't understand. Why are you asking? You know, but both of them answered the same way. Well, of course he should. Like, yeah. why wouldn't he? So it, it's interesting that even to other people outside of the Métis world, this is uh, like a no-brainer. Like, and and again, I got some funny looks, but and yet, and that's what I find so bewildering about that. And yet, this is a topic that's something that hasn't happened yet. That the MNA is on record for a very long time, in in, in non-support of. And yet, so in 2017, we're talking about something that should, really should have been settled back in uh, 2004. Absolutely, and I mean, the other thing that I, I actually forgot to even point out was. In 2004, it was the government that approached the MNC to offer to review the case. It wasn't because the MNC or, or anybody came at them. And the reason they did that was because they had found that, I don't know if at that time or, or even this is more current, but there have been 25 bills introduced in Parliament seeking his pardon or exoneration. 
over the over time. So again, if there's, I mean, to get a an MP to actually introduce a bill, it takes a lot of work, and I don't think people quite understand how much work that takes. It is not something that you just pick up the phone, phone your MP, and they go, yeah, sure, I'll type that up tonight, and they send it in, and boom, done. It's not quite like that. So to actually have 25 bills introduced in Parliament represents a lot of work by a lot of people. And so again, who's the MNC representing? Because it's not any of the people involved in those 25 bills. They certainly weren't the ones putting them forth. So what are they fighting for that they say they're fighting for? I, and so, I, But I just think if the government's going to come and offer it, well, this is even easier now because you didn't actually have to do any work. This is literally just you saying, yeah, that sounds good. Go ahead. I, <laughs> yeah, they're basically handing you some whole low-hanging fruit to take back to your own constituents and say, hey, look what the government's going to do. Yeah. Aren't we good? Exactly. Instead, instead, you decide, oh, no, screw you. You know, we want him to stay a criminal. And uh, so we can keep talking about the Red River Rebellion. And are uh, and still fighting for our rights. I don't understand what kind of a yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, I'd, I'm in the dark. And if I could sit in that boardroom boardroom with them, I would clearly be a much more enlightened individual. That's right. You 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 know you got to go drink the Kool Aid and wear the wear the the tinfoil hat and then sit in the boardroom. That's right. Clearly, clearly, my beaded uh, smoker's cap is not tight enough, or I would understand. Exactly. Exactly. Well, now that we've cleared that up, I think we can move on. Uh, so I got a message on Facebook Messenger from a woman, and she was asking me what I thought about a certain situation. And it kind of ties into two conversations that I was hoping to have here tonight. The first one was about land acknowledgement. And this has become a big deal for almost anybody who goes to any event anywhere in public anymore in Canada. And... Uh, you know, some places are better at it, and some organizations are better at it at, at remembering to do it or whatever. Um, but but I think to non-Indigenous people, they have a very different view of what land acknowledgement is as as opposed to Indigenous people. So when I go to events and they acknowledge land, it's usually, you know, we acknowledge that we're on Treaty 7 or we're on Blackfoot Confederacy. If you're really good, you'll you'll get people who acknowledge you know each nation within the Blackfoot Confederacy, if they are are really into it, and usually that's an Indigenous person doing that. Uh, and but what's what sometimes is followed up at the end of it all is oh, and it's you know for myself it's Region Three of the Métis Nation, uh, which kind of bothers me because Region Three is not really a traditional name for this area. Um, but at least they acknowledge Métis, and I guess there's a lot of places in Canada that do acknowledgements without mentioning anything about Métis. And uh, I don't know if... I guess the whole conversation I want to have is do maybe letting people know that the land acknowledgement is not an acknowledgement of who owned the land, but just simply acknowledging the heritage of people from the land. Um, and I think as Métis people as we were everywhere, really, um, according to most people outside of the MNA and MNC and the cartel, uh, we, you know, we are people of the land from all over the country. So acknowledging, simply acknowledging Métis people is what I've asked people to do, just say, well, you know, and Métis people. Um, but this still, still seems to be a problem, and I don't know if you've gone to events, Jason, where they've done a land acknowledgement and left out Métis or, you know, included it as a Métis region three or six or wherever you're at i don't have you ever noticed that well i've i've been to a few very few have i ever been to where Métis people were specifically mentioned um mostly because i think it, it is a lack of inexperience um and because i live in northern alberta it's still not a big thing um when when an, an event does happen and there's acknowledgement usually is about the immediate treaty partner and the nation that is most you know uh dominant in that area yep uh but i haven't been to one where they recognize metis people specifically which i find funny since we literally uh coexisted with every different uh nation that there is uh has metis people yes and oddly uh or more fortunately i guess for me i never had to uh actually endure the 
you know, my um, self-contained laughter if someone would be saying, you know, the uh, historical uh, Zone 7 or Zone 3 of the Zone 1 of the uh, Métis Nation of Alberta, you know. Yeah. Uh, Just I'm, I'm trying to, you know, fathom the magnitude, I guess, of someone's acknowledgement of that historical long-standing tradition of zone one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's quite interesting, but you know, um, on a good note, I have actually had people come and I've had a couple of people now ask me, how do I acknowledge Métis people uh, when I do my land acknowledgement? So, you know, I mean, here in Calgary, it's become a really big thing. City council, likes to do it at all their public events and things like that. Um, a lot of activist groups do it when they have rallies. Um, so, you know, it, it is becoming more and more, at least in the bigger cities. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just more important in the bigger cities. Maybe people place more value on it. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think we need to definitely make sure that people understand it, that it's not acknowledging land ownership because I don't know of an Indigenous person that claims ownership of land. Uh, they do claim a relationship with the land. So if there's any non-Indigenous listening, just keep that in mind that it's not really an acknowledgement of land ownership because I think to them it is. I think when, when non-Indigenous hear a land acknowledgement, it's it's like acknowledging that, uh, you know, the guy who, whoever owned your house before you did, you know? And I think that's how they see it, so... In a lot of ways. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, because I live in a rural area, I think there's not, we don't have the population density of Indigenous people in a smaller community, and I'm glad to see that major cities uh, like Calgary are, are taking the lead on that because I know smaller communities eventually follow suit. And so I'm, I'm really happy to see that Métis people are getting acknowledged as an Indigenous people group. I, it does go, you know, uh, smacks a lot, though, uh, land acknowledgements. You have the colonial mindset that you can own property. Yes. So that was, an, you know, it was an interesting message because it, it kind of, it started off with it, with one thing here that we're going to talk about in, in a minute, but it kind of led into kind of this pan-Indigenous land claim. Um, I've even heard some people say, you know, as far as a land claim code, just say, you know, we recognize this as Indigenous land, and then they move on. But it's that's not really a land acknowledgement. That's like... It's kind of pan-indigenizing, and it's almost, uh, I, I don't know, kind of condescending. I don't know how you f- feel about that if they just say, we recognize this as indigenous land. Is that? Well, it's, it's kind of dismissive, and I think if that's the best you can do, I mean, at least it's a start. I Lots of times people do it out of a, a courtesy uh, or an obligation more than the reality of coexisting partners um, within the framework. You know, regardless of what the foibles that is, that is where we find ourselves today. But the reality is, is that a proper acknowledgement is very difficult because most of our non-Indigenous friends are, at a fundamental level, unaware of what the treaties really mean. And so, to do a proper land acknowledgement is a construct they're not familiar with. You know, and it's dismissive. You know, it's like, hey, we recognize everybody in Canada who came from Poland. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, that's about it. Um, you know, thanks for thanks for the progies. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think, you know, I think um, I'm kind of up in the air, though, when it comes to the whole treaty, uh, or do you recognize it as traditional Blackfoot territory, traditional Cree territory? Because um, even that can be contentious within those territories. Uh, however, uh, a lot of people default to the treaties, which works well if you're in a in a treaty area. Uh, like a lot of people here recognize it as Treaty 7 land, which I I like and I don't like. I mean, it, it's something, but to me it, it should be acknowledged as to whose traditional territory it was. Th- that to me is a land acknowledgement. To say it's Treaty 7 territory, well, it is, but let's go back another year before that and, and let, acknowledge who was here. Um, you, you know, I don't know. Do you think it makes a difference at all or? Uh, I've thought about it. I really don't know because I'm not a treaty person, so I I don't know, and I don't want to presume to speak on their behalf. Yeah. But I, I think it is interesting. I, I'd like to see the specific nations acknowledged more Yeah. Uh, by name because I think to the colonial mind, if you start naming the specific nations, especially in their own indigenous language, 
not not our English versions of their name, makes it a real living presence partnership. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest challenge in land acknowledgements on a whole. My fundamental problem with them is it's constantly with the feel that it's in the past tense. Yes. Um, we acknowledge then, and it's almost that this once was, you know, I acknowledge that the land I bought was once Bob's, but now it's mine because I bought it from Bob. Yeah. But he was a good dude, and I want to remember Bob because yeah. he was a good guy and sold me the land, right? Yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel that's how the land acknowledgements are done. Yes. And I don't know if that's necessarily their intent, but that's the feel I walk away with. And, you know, so if I was if I was a treaty person where, where it was my, you know, my ancestors who signed it or were there or that was our traditional territory chances are you still live there your people still live there you know much like metis people you know white court said historic metis community we've lived and metis people have been here for a very long time yeah you're just never acknowledged that that's an ongoing process that hey uh you know 200 300 years later we still are here still occupying the same space yeah. you know that kind of deal well, and it's interesting because I've I've uh, had a conversation recently too about with some people about a lot of times you get uh, you know non-indigenous people saying, well, how are we supposed to know whose land this is on? And I think that right there is is a huge red flag as to how good our education system is at how good our public you know uh, elected officials are at acknowledging the land, and that's why I think it's. You know, it's okay to say, oh, this is Treaty 7 territory. I don't think a lot of people even really grasp what that means if you're non-Indigenous. Uh, so it's kind of like, eh, whatever, Treaty 7, sounds good. So I think it's very, to me, it's important to to note that this is, you know, for, for me, it would be Blackfoot territory. Uh, because it, it does put an, an identity to a people group whose land we are sitting on, whose whose territory we were sitting we are sitting on and i i think it you know it, go, it kind of goes back to that conversation you know when you say well it, we're all indigenous well yes we are but that's just a kind of a term we use to describe people but if you were to ask somebody who they are they don't say oh i'm indigenous no they say they're metis they say they're blackfoot they're cree so to me it, a, a real to to show a sign of respect and do a land acknowledgement would be to to acknowledge that nation that's that's nearby or or that confederacy or that you know that kind of thing so i I think that's for me the important part of that treaty seven is like well okay that's it's a start (laughs) for people just starting to do land acknowledgements yeah okay we'll give you that one but let's step up the game a little next time i think that's how i see it um well i think you hit the nail on the head though this it's an education process and I agree with you. I'm I'm happy at least the process is taking place. Yeah. But like everything, um, people need to become educated about the larger world around them. Um, and I think especially if you're an elected official, you're in a position of government or responsibility, or even if you're just the chair of that meeting and you're going to give a land acknowledgement, you know, like we live in the age where you have the power of Google. I'm, I'm sure it would be nice to, to uh, hear a proper acknowledgement um, of the, the specific nation that uh, whose land that everything sits on right now in your area. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I mean if I can Google, everyone can Google. Well, that's just it. To say that you don't know whose land or territory this is specifically, uh, you you got to be some kind of dumb in these day and age because, I mean, seriously, there's Google, there's people. You can actually go talk to people. I mean... You could drive out to Siksika in, in my territory here and, and say, hey, <laughs> what land is Calgary sitting on? And people might look at you funny, but they would give you an answer. Uh, so it's 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 really not difficult. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not hard. I mean, all you have to do is uh, Google reserves in Alberta, and it will show you the nearest reserve to you. Exactly. Which well, you can, which, which you can call and ask. Well, the worst case is, it, 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 like you said, Google. I mean, you can Google treaty, like the treaties of Alberta, and it'll tell you all the nations that make up each treaty. So, good God, come on, let's step up the game here a little bit. I know. Uh, I used to say you get a library card, but now you don't even have to get a library card. You don't even have to leave your home, and you don't have to have the discomfort and displeasure of actually talking to anybody. You can just punch keys on a keyboard and get an education. 
I know. It's super easy. It's crazy, I know. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, okay. it, it's funny because I had a conversation with some people actually at that arts dance thing, and, and uh, you know, we kind of talked about that on the show about how people don't know, well, I don't know how to get a hold of a of a indigenous artist, local indigenous artist. And I'm like, for God's sakes, Google, uh, like Calgary indigenous artist. And I, I know the names that are going to come up because I've met some of them, and I can tell you right now there's some phenomenal artists. And if you're in Edmonton, type in Edmonton. Indigenous artist. You're probably going to come up with Aaron Paquette, who lives in Edmonton, and a bunch of others that I don't even know about. I mean, if I was going to look up an artist, that's what I would do. So this whole idea that these cities that have been around, like Calgary has been surrounded in Blackfoot territory by Indigenous people since its inception, yet we don't know how to contact them. We don't know how to... We don't know how to ask them how we do a land acknowledgement. Like, come on, give me a break. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it really boils down to, in, in our day and age, that's what it comes down to, is not taking responsibility. I think we have a lot of people going around today wanting to extol the virtues of their freedoms, but everybody knows that freedom comes with responsibility. And if we're going to be responsible for our freedoms, then we should be responsible for our education as to, you know, who are our treaty partners, who are the indigenous people whose lands everything is built on. You know, this isn't even, we're not talking about taking years out of your life to even figure out. No, absolutely not. No. And, you know, I don't know. That's, it's just so, so pathetic. But this whole panic. It really is the, I find it challenging because that really is the default though is everybody is either, you know, it's the conversation we see a lot in news media right now where why can't we all just be Canadian? Yes. Well, well, you can just all be Canadian or you can all just be, well, Indigenous, right? That's the thing that you can just all be that. Yeah. You know? Because that makes it easier think, for everybody else. Yeah. I think it's, it's just an easy way to throw off the whole conversation and try to go back to your narrow-minded little cupboard box you know, so that you can, you know, eat your Doritos, watch your hockey game, and, you know, eat, drink some Molson Canadian. Absolutely. And and I think it does fit with a narrative, too, if, if, of erasing cultures. It Just by simply referring to everybody now as Indigenous, it, it, that's just another form of genocide. That's just a very passive continuation of genocide because if everybody starts saying Indigenous and just calling everybody Indigenous, well, then in 20 years, nobody's even going to have a clue what even they're gonna even have less of an understanding than they do now so i think it's really important that we start i mean you know when when people ask me you know are you indigenous i'm, I'm yes but i'm metis because i'm metis i'm indigenous um and i think it's important that we start to acknowledge people as what nation they're from so if you meet a blackfoot person call them a blackfoot person don't if you meet a cree person call them cree and so on and so forth for the other many many plethora of nations that I'm, I can't list um, but let's start acknowledging people for who they are and what nation they're from it's really really simple especially when you live in an area it's not like we're moving you're moving around every month to a new area of Canada and you have to reacquaint yourself they, come on put the effort in and I, I think that I like to, I think that even goes beyond we have to do that and, and take the time to see people and our neighbors as who they are because everybody in Canada, if you're Indigenous, then you're part of a nation and a tapestry of nations that make up the fabric of Indigenous people. Yes. And if you are not, then you came from somewhere. Yes. And you should be proud of wherever that is as well. Absolutely. So, you know, Canada and the Canadian state is a tapestry of people, and that tapestry should be celebrated equally. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're from the British, you know, Commonwealth, if you're from France or Germany or wherever you're from, that should be celebrated too. And yeah. I think that that individuality and that that heritage that everybody comes from somewhere is what does make Canada truly a unique place to live in. So why reduce it down and really dumb it down to this idea that there's just, you know, this or that, you know, you're Canadian you're just indigenous, you know, it's a real, I think, you know, degrades everyone. Absolutely. And it goes back to that whole idea of, you know, either or. Everything's got to be either or. Well, why can't it just be both? Let's just be reasonable. 
Um, but that leads into the kind of the next thing with this whole pan-Indigenous thing, or I guess an extension of that is um, this conversation I had on the Messenger actually started out because a, um, a woman had been asked to come into a school, and I believe she was an artist or something, so she was doing some teachings uh, from her culture, which is, I, I believe it was Anishinaabe, and she was doing some art, and they asked her about Métis stuff, and she said, well, I, I don't really know Métis culture or traditions because I'm not Métis. Um, and they kept pressing her to include Métis, include Métis. So in the art, in the piece of art that she did for the class that she was talking to, she, you know, put some, some infinity signs designs in there uh, just to kind of appease the school and, and make them happy. But again, that's a school that's clearly just doing a pan-Indigenous, oh, you're Indigenous, so you know everything about everybody and all nations are the same. And, and you know, it, there's so many ways that our schools fail our kids these, these days and have been for a long time. And, you know, I, I think this is a clear indication of how badly um, they're failing. Now, on the, on the positive side, they're trying to include Indigenous. So I guess that's a good thing. But it's just the pan-Indigeneity of everybody that, that kind of kills the anything that could have been positive there. I think it's challenging. It's, it's, it's like you said, I think we're making steps and I think a lot of those steps in the right direction, but it sure feels like everybody's a newborn baby and we're all, you know, teeter tottering and flopping as we try to figure out how to walk. Um, to me, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, you have, if you're a school, then that school is located within a certain district and it should be the school's responsibility and due diligence to get in contact with all or several different people from different nations to represent their distinct ways. And I think it's the underlying problem is in a lot of ways, schools and other institutions are trying to race to include indigenous perspective in what goes on in school. But in doing so, they believe that, I don't know, somehow we all know everybody's traditions and stories and, you know, well, yeah, they're, and, they're all the same, know. right? Well, or, or that we have that kind of knowledge. Like somehow as an AT person, I know all all the different, you know, things that the Alexis Nation by me that goes on with them and the Sioux and, or the Cree just north of me. I, I somehow am intrinsically aware of everything that, that has gone on there yeah. and, can speak, and, and can speak to that. You know, if I went to Europe, that wouldn't fly. I'm not going to go to the Swiss Alps and ask them to tell me the story of Norway. You know, in the Norwegians, exactly. they're going to look at me funny. Yeah, and I, I think that's the real problem. So I'm I'm happy that these schools are being inclusive. I'm happy that they're putting our issues on the table and trying to be inclusive. It is still frustrating that in this day and an age, people don't take a breath and 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 put a little bit of planning and sensitivity into it. That uh, you know, that we are our own nations. We have our own traditions and it's inappropriate for one person from a certain nation to try to represent even well-intentioned uh, a different indigenous group. It doesn't, shouldn't work that way. No. And I think it speaks to a lot to the, like schools need to be willing and, and organizations that are non-indigenous need to be willing to actually work with and listen to these first nation people that they want to come do these things. Had that school have talked to her beforehand and said, well, this is what we want, and had her explain, okay, but I'm not Métis, so I'm not teaching anything about that, because that, that's ridiculous. So here's what I'll teach, here's what I'll do, and you can work with me on that, but I'm not going to include Métis, because I don't know them. I don't know their their story. And, and I think it's, in, you know, it's incumbent on the schools, it's incumbent on organizations uh, to say, okay, that sounds great. Well, you're you know, you're the person we asked, and this you're giving us your expert opinion on your own culture and on the teachings that we wanted you to, to come in and do. So I, I think that's another conversation here is that, you know, a lot of times these people expect they, they want Indigenous inclusion, but they don't want to actually listen to or really work with Indigenous. They just want Indigenous to come in, put on their little show, and then take off. And uh, I, I've come across that a lot, and it, I think it's a huge issue. Well, very much. It's one thing to have inclusion. It's another thing to have 
uh, meaningful dialogue just because you were there. You know, we, we've seen this. This is the continual, you know, this is the process right from the beginning when we sign treaties. You know, what's said and what's written down and then what's enacted are very rarely the same thing. So they're happy to make space for us, I find. Um, as far as meaningful dialogue that produces, you know, cooperative change, well, that remains to be seen. It's kind of like, um, what was it, Thomas King said in his The Inconvenient Indian when he said that they want the dead Indian. That's it. They want the feathers and the and the headdresses and the, you know, the drums, but they don't actually want to see Indigenous people as people of today. And I think that's a lot of what happens here. I think that's really... Exactly. Full circle back to the whole land acknowledgement. They're, they're happy to hear our stories about the sash and the canoe and the hunting the buffalo and the hides. But when it talks about the modern struggle of Indigenous people in urban centres and the poverty, the lack of water, the lack of acknowledgement of our intrinsic, you know, constitutional rights. You know, we're not going to go there, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. Well, we're uh, we're running short on time here, but I did want to close out the show by letting everybody know that tomorrow is uh, a Sisters in Spirit vigil. It's you know, October 4th every year, and it happens all across Canada. And there are some phenomenal vigils that happen everywhere. And if you want to find out more about them, go to uh, www.nwac.ca, which is N-W-A-C, and click on the MMIWG link, which is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls link. And there you will see a list of October 4th Sisters and Spirit Vigils. Uh, If you... I really encourage everybody to make it out for those. We need to show support for them. Uh, but they are happening almost everywhere. And in fact, even up by you, Jason, I checked, there's one by one in Valley View that you could attend. Um, so check it out, and please take the time to go. There's Some of them happen throughout the day, some of them happen in, in the evenings, but please take the time to go. It's important we support them, because the MMIW just doesn't apply to First Nations or Inuit. It definitely applies to Métis women and girls. So head out and show some support. I don't know if you got any last final words, Jason. No, I think that's an excellent note. You know, we'll do our best to uh, make it out. I think this is an important issue, uh, and we need to be there in solidarity with each other. Absolutely, and if you're in the Calgary area, it starts at 1130, and it will be downtown. So I hopefully will be able to get over there in time. And I think that's it. That's all I got. So until next time, the jig is up. Long live the king. Hey. My late cooking came from Kawaka to express. Real warrior woman probably popping loose there. It's poor man's if you wanna talk that language. A hundred clicks north if RG is the rest. You still gotta be a chief to wear a headdress. So take your shit off before you ruin it for the rest. You better listen to your heart, there's too many heads. And watch what you say, man, it's way too many feds.